Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you for the hope that he gives us uh, in difficult and trying times. And I want to thank you uh, for Norma's uh, legacy of faith and, and service to others. And uh, I want to pray uh, for Reed um, right now that he would feel well served by the church family and uh, by your spirit and that he would just be encouraged during these difficult days. Again, we thank you for Jesus and the hope he gives us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. On December, uh, December 17th, 1903, uh, Orville and Wilbur uh, Wright attempted to make a, a, a flight. Uh, and after about five tries, uh, they achieved uh, about 12 seconds of flight uh, before coming down kind of abruptly to the ground. And uh, they were just overwhelmed with excitement. They'd been working on this forever, and they achieved 12 seconds of flight. And so they went and immediately telegrammed uh, their, their sister with the, the following message. said, we have flown for 12 seconds. We will be home for Christmas. And so she was super excited about it. She knew how much this meant to them. And so she went to the local newspaper and said, listen, uh, my brothers have achieved flight. They flew for 12 seconds and they are going to be home for Christmas if you want to set up an interview with them. That would be the perfect time to do it. And everyone kind of thanked each other. And on December 19th, uh, the local newspaper ran this headline, Wilbur Brothers will be home for Christmas. Um, kind of missing the point. Right? The point was they'd achieve flight for 12 seconds, not that they were going to be home for Christmas. And I, I find that there's a lot of stories like this over the years where just people just kind of miss the point. They, they, they miss what it's all about. And in the book of Revelation chapter 2, um, John is writing this text, but he's really quoting Jesus who comes to the, the known churches of the ancient world, and he's kind of exhorting them to stop missing the point, to invest, in what's really to, to invest in what really matters. And I'd encourage you to read all of those letters uh, in Revelation 2 and 3 to the churches of, of the ancient times. But today I want to show you the one that was written to Ephesus, uh, to the city of Ephesus, the church that was there, because it has to do with love, and it has to do with making sure uh, that we don't miss the point of it all. Revelation 2, let's read together. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, uh, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So one of the things I love about uh, this letter to the church in Ephesus is you start out in verses 2 and 3, and you see everything this church is doing well. He says, man, you're working hard. You're serving others. You're making a difference uh, in, in this way. He says, you persevered. 
We know that this church had been through some trials. They'd been through some persecution. And he says, you've persevered and uh, you, you've, you've endured it and, and you've made it through it. He goes on to say, you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you can see the sin of your culture. You can see the sin of the people ar- around you and you don't make any excuses for it. He says, you know God's word well enough that when uh, those who are false teachers came into your midst, you were able to identify their teachings as false. That you were able to know God's word and know Jesus well enough that you said, when you heard something that wasn't true, you were able to identify that it wasn't true. And when you read verses two and three, I don't know if you have this reaction, but when I read verses two and three, I'm like, that's a church I'm joining. Right? I, I love the way this church is described. They persevere. They don't give up. They are able to identify sin. They're able to identify false teachers. Sign me up. This church sounds healthy. It sounds good. It sounds even vibrant. This is a church that I would love to join until you get to verse four. He says, but I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken the most important thing. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken love in general, but in particular, you have forsaken your love for Jesus. And it is a reminder, it's a warning that you can do many right things, but have your motivation be in the wrong place. It's possible to do all the right things for Jesus and have your motivation be something different than a love for Jesus, right? Your motivation could be any number of things. It could be that you're a person that was just raised to do the right thing. And this is kind of embedded in you. So you do the right thing, uh, but you might not do it for the right reason. Uh, You might do the right thing because you feel obligated to do the right thing. You might do it out of a sense of obligation. So like when your buddy uh, asks you to help them move, you know you don't have anything going on, (laughs) right? Are you going to lie? No, you're going to help them because you feel obligated to help them. You don't don't love moving people. Nobody, if you do, I'm praying for you. you, do, you might do the right thing because you'd like for people to see you do the right thing, right? You like the accolades that come with that. You might do the right thing in terms of your faith because that's your family heritage, right? As far back as you can remember, maybe your family has been in a faith tradition and this is just the way you were raised. Whatever the case was for the church in Ephesus, they were doing some things really, really well. They knew God's word. They were serving one another. Uh, They were persevering. They were doing all of these right things, but their motivation, which is the most important thing, I think, their motivation was not a love for Jesus. And the text says, Jesus says to them, you have lost your first love. I remember uh, the first time I kind of felt the sense of love. Uh, I was at the ripe old age of third grade and her name was Karen. And I knew that we had something special because she had the same lunchbox as me, He-Man. And it was love at first sight. I thought it was strange, but she had a He-Man lunchbox too. And and I started sitting by her at lunch. And then one day I came into the cafeteria and I saw that she was sitting with another boy, uh, that that she was sitting with Tommy Walker, curse him for his Transformers lunchbox, right? And all of a sudden, just like that, my first love was dead. The word that is used here to describe the idea of losing your first love, it is a word that elsewhere in the New Testament is tied to marriage. It's talking about where um, in your marriage, you're doing some things well, but the love in the home has gone cold. And the same is true for this church. If I can use this phrase, it's so overused, so forgive me. They had fallen out of love with Jesus. 
They were doing all of these things, but they weren't in love with him anymore. And listen to what it says in verse five. If you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand in the book of Revelation uh, signifies the church. And, And the point is this, a church that doesn't love Jesus really isn't a church at all. Right? You can serve and you can know God's word and you can do all this stuff. But a church that doesn't love Jesus, I, loving Jesus is the point. Right? So a church that loves, doesn't love Jesus really isn't a church at all. In verse five, verses 5 and 6, he shows them the path, path back. He says, consider uh, how far you have fallen. Like how uh, the older NIV version says it. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So the million dollar question of Revelation 2, when he said, repent and do the things you did at first, the million dollar question is, what were they doing at first? Right? That, that, that's a, an obvious question that, uh, that this text asks. And a lot of times when you're reading the scriptures, there's a lot of mystery in the scriptures, especially in Revelation. We did Revelation a couple years ago. It's odd at times. It is hard to understand, and I would immediately be suspicious of anybody that says to you, oh, I understand Revelation. Like, uh, I don't know about that. I took my sabbatical, and I studied Revelation deeply. I did a sermon series on it, and I'm still like, eh, I, you know, I, I think we did a good job. I'm, I don't know exactly what it all means. But in this particular case, what you did at first does not need to be a mystery, because in Acts 19, Uh, We can follow uh, that text and we can see exactly what this church was doing at first. Let me give you a little background and then I'm going to read to you a text from Acts 19. Ephesus, uh, which is where this church was, was a a major metropolitan area and it was a wicked city. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, They worshiped a god called Artemis and you would go uh, to the temple of Artemis um, and because there's kids in the room, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but when you would go to the, the temple of Artemis, let me just say it this way, sexual sin took place uh, at that temple, and, and it, was, it was really, really wicked. In addition to that, the city was full of sorcery and witchcraft and just all sorts of stuff. And so Paul had come here to plant a church, and Paul fell in love with the church. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He ended up staying here for about three years. And uh, Paul's in Ephesus. He's trying to change the wickedness of the city. He's trying to have an impact. He's trying to have the church have, have an impact. Um, there's actually a sto- several stories of Paul doing healings in the book of Ephesus. One of them is that uh, a handkerchief uh, basically kind of falled off his person and it touched someone. As it fell off, it touched somebody and they were immediately healed. This is what was going on in Paul's ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. A lot of crazy stuff is happening and it has an impact. The city begins to change. Let me show you what it says in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, a total uh, came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So here it is. This is the beginning of the church. This is what we see happening is that they had come, the, the people in this city had come to realize their wickedness. 
They had come to identify their sin and they started confessing their sin. They started turning away from it and they started turning to Jesus for love, grace, and mercy. And you can imagine being a part of this, that as they grew in their understanding of grace, as they grew in their understanding of love and forgiveness, they began to love Jesus more and more and more. People are coming out of sorcery. They're coming out of wickedness. They're coming out of sexual sin. They're coming out of all of this stuff. And this was a vibrant community that was well aware of their sin, that was well aware of Jesus's expectations for, him, for them. They were well aware of his grace and they worshiped him and they loved him and they, they hung on to his grace and they sought after him. I've come to notice the last several years in Big C Church is that there's been a movement away from an understanding of our sin that we just don't like looking at it in this culture. We don't like talking about it in, in this culture, our own sin. We don't like identifying it uh, in, in this culture. There's been, there's been a movement away from it. You even see the word sin uh, being replaced by the word mistake. That I'm not a sinner, I'm a mistaker. Right? I just kind of stumbled into it, right? Uh, I didn't intend to do it, I just made a mistake. And we're distancing ourselves from sin but here's why this is so dangerous. Without an understanding of my personal sin, I will never under have an understanding of my personal need for a savior. Without an understanding of my personal sin, I will never understand or never fully understand my need for a savior. And when that happens, when I don't understand my need for a savior, our worship will never be as passionate as it could be. Our relationship with Jesus will never be as vibrant as it could be. The, our love will not be as strong as we want it to be when we don't recognize our personal sin and our personal need for a savior, our personal need for grace, our personal need for forgiveness, our personal need for Jesus. And when we distance ourselves from sin, whether we understand this or not, and I, I don't think most of us do, when we distance ourselves from our sin, we end up distancing ourselves from Jesus. And this church got this at the beginning. They understood that because of their sin, they were in desperate need of a savior. They were in desperate need of grace. They were in desperate need of help. And when they saw that Jesus offered all of those things, their love for him grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And it was an amazing time to be a part of the church where people are realizing their sin. They're realizing that their sin is keeping them from the relationship with God they were created to have. And they're confessing it. They're burning these scrolls. They're leaving behind their life of wickedness and they are running to Jesus because they knew Jesus had the key to life. They knew Jesus had the key to grace. They knew Jesus had the key to everything. And so they ran after Jesus with all the passion and energy they could muster. And just 40 years later, when the book of Revelation was written, and depending on your age, 40 years either sounds like a lot or a little. Uh, at 44, it sounds like a little, right? So uh, I'll tell you, just 40 years later, Here's what Jesus observes about this church. They had become really great at seeing the sin in others. You do not tolerate wicked men. You do not tolerate, this is a thing that is celebrated in the church in Ephesus. That you see the sin in others, 
You see the false teacher. You see the wickedness. You see the shortcomings. You see it in wicked men, but they were no longer a church that is described in Acts 19. They were no longer seeing it in themselves. They no longer saw their own personal sin. They no longer confessed their sin. They no longer saw their personal need for a savior. And what happened was they lost their first love. Their joy in the grace giver. Their joy in the grace giver had gone away. And it started with seeing it in others, but not seeing it in themselves. And all of a sudden they didn't need that grace they didn't need that forgiveness. They, they didn't need Jesus as much. And all of a sudden, joy in the grace giver goes away. And it's replaced by this cold-hearted, that guy's not speaking the truth. That woman's not living the way that she should. That couple's doing it all wrong. That guy is a false teacher. And here's the truth of this passage, these two passages together. When you begin to see sin only in them and you never see it in you, the first place it will show up is in your relationship to Jesus and specifically your love for Jesus. Your worship will grow cold, it will. When you see it in them but you don't see it in you, your love will grow cold, your worship will become stagnant, your joy will begin to cease because we have it all together. And when we convince ourselves that's true, what is the point of a savior? And what is the point of Jesus? Here's how I heard it described one time. This was really meaningful to me. I think I've used it in a sermon before, but the, the way it was described to me is we spend too much time looking out the window when it comes to sin, and we should spend more time looking in the mirror. Isn't that true? And doesn't it describe our culture perfectly? With the 24-hour news cycle, with social media right now, we, there is more window watching than I've ever seen in my life, right? It, it is so easy to stand at your window of, of digital media, of, of TV, to stand at your window and just feel like it's all going to pop and, and to see the sin and to see the disregard for God and to see all of that stuff going on and it is, it, to see all the screw up and it is easy to stand at the window and point the finger at everybody else. And here's Jesus's point. The longer that goes on without any sense of self-evaluation, the longer that goes on, the colder our love for Jesus will become. The more you don't see the need for grace, the less you'll love his grace. The more you don't see the need for mercy, the less you'll love his mercy. The more you don't see the need for salvation, the less you'll love the cross. And this is why when somebody first comes to faith and they come out of a rough background, you can hardly hold them back in their love, right? For their love for Jesus and honestly, their love for others. You can hardly hold them back because there is this feeling of where they had come from and where they are now. It's like, that is the grace of my Lord. That is the mercy of my Lord. That is the forgiveness of my Lord. And they receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And they love him so much for it. Their passion for him is so strong. This is the Apostle Paul story, by the way, um, uh, that, that we talked about a few weeks ago, that uh, before he became a, a church pastor, he was a church persecutor. Before he met Jesus, he killed people, you know, killed Christians. 
And all of a sudden on the road to Damascus, Jesus kind of showed himself to Paul and Paul became a worshiper and Paul was the biggest grace guy you would ever meet in your life. He loved grace, he loved mercy, he loved forgiveness because he had been the recipient of it. And it seems to me, this is my experience, I won't speak for yours, the longer you're a Christian, and I think part of this is the work the Holy Spirit does in us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, the longer you're a Christian, the more susceptible we are to forgetting those wonderful truths of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And we start to forget how desperately we need him. So here's my question. As you look at Acts 19 and Revelation 2, is that happening to you? As you have followed after Jesus, has your worship become stale? Has your love for Jesus become a little bit cold? Has your passion begun to wane? Sometimes we think that it's something else that maybe it's not actually that. Like, you know, sometimes we'll think, I just didn't like any songs that we sang today, so I couldn't really worship. Or Steve's sermon, was it just me or was that like a little bit flat? I know you'd never say that, but he, you know, felt a little off to that, right? Was it me or was that, that sermon just a little bit flat? Or, or maybe it's like, I've got the quarantine 2020 blues. Somebody needs to write that song, right? I got the 2020 blues, right? And the 2020 blahs. Listen, those things don't help. But is it possible? I'm moving from preaching to intruding right now. Is it possible that your worship has grown, grown a little bit stale? Because through social media and through the news and just through life, you are standing at the window pointing at everybody else and you have forgotten that you too need a savior, that you too need grace, that you too need mercy. Is it possible that we have done too much window watching and not enough looking in the mirror? I know it's true for me. Window watching has never been easier. You go to social media, you turn on the news, and all of a sudden, this thing inside of me, this judgmental thing inside of me, just rears up. How do they treat their family that way? How, do they, uh, how, how, do, how on earth can they take that action? And it's just finger pointing, finger pointing, finger pointing. And listen, the Bible is not opposed to calling out the sin of culture. It's not. As a matter of fact, the Bible kind of commands us to make correct judgments about things. And Ephesus is, the church in Ephesus is actually celebrated for not tolerating wicked men. So the Bible is not opposed to this, but Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us that before we judge a single person, we should engage in looking in the mirror first. Before we ever walk to the window, we, we walk to the mirror and we look at ourselves and we pray, Jesus, would you expose what needs to be exposed in me? Jesus, would you point out my sin? Would you point out my shortcomings? Would you point out where I've screwed up? And then we go to him for grace, mercy, and forgiveness, which he lavishly gives, and then and only then are we equipped to walk over to the, to walk over to the window and say, well, I'm seeing some sin in our culture. But I promise you, if you have engaged in self-evaluation first, if you looked in the mirror first, I promise you, your tone will be moderated, your grace will be up, your love will be up, and it will change everything about your message. It will turn from finger pointing to a warm embrace. 
And I only know because that's how our Savior operated and lived. So, so the Bible is not opposed to making these kind of judgments about culture or about the world or about identifying sin. We should be wise about all of those things. But what the Bible would say is before you ever walk over to the window, get yourself prettied up by looking in the mirror, right? We all do this every day with life anyway. I always look in the mirror before I go to the window, right? I don't want someone seeing me with my bedhead, right? I'm going to go to the mirror. That's how I get this pretty. This doesn't happen by accident, right? right? So you, you go to the mirror first, and then you are equipped to go to the window. And here's, here's the, the pathway back. He says, consider, uh, the consider how far you have fallen, Right? That, in other words, what the scripture is teaching us is that you can't change what you don't acknowledge. And we've got to uh, kind of rip apart this kind of big C cultural uh, phenomenon where everything's fine. That you come into church and it's like, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are your kids? They're fine. How are your kids? They're fine. Every single Sunday across the United States, everybody's fine. What are the chances? No, we have developed a culture where you're supposed to pretend that you're fine. And here at Northwest, we are trying to rip that culture apart a little bit and remind people it is okay to not be okay. It is okay to, it is okay to come in here not being okay. We don't want you to stay not okay. We want Jesus to do a work in you. We want the spirit to do a work in you, but it is okay to come here and not be okay. And it's in admitting where we are looking in that mirror and saying, this is where I am. This is where I really am. It's in looking in the mirror that healing begins to arrive. And sometimes when I look in the mirror, I'm not that far off from this church in Ephesus. I don't know about you. Where there was a time where I understood my sin and I repented of it and I received grace and I loved Jesus so much for the work that he was doing. And then there are other times where I am just standing at the window, identifying everybody else's sin and ignoring my own. And yeah, your worship grows cold. Your faith begins to stagnate. Your relationship with Jesus doesn't feel like it used to feel. But it's not the worship songs that we sing. It's probably not the sermon that was preached. It's probably not the 2020 blasts. It may be that we've just stopped looking at ourselves, identifying sin, and asking Jesus to do a work. So he says, identify the height from which you have fallen. The next thing he says is repent. The word translated repent, it just means to rethink or reconsider what you're doing. So I've been doing this a lot during COVID-19, um, uh, kind of evaluating where I have noticed that as I prepared for this message and as I've just evaluated life, I've noticed that certain things cause me to stand at the window more and at the mirror less, right? And so I, I've noticed that, man, when I, I get real angsty the more news that I watch. Uh, I get more angsty the more social media that I have. So I started to just do this thing, and this isn't scripture, this is Steve, so you can throw this away, or if you think it's a stupid idea, that's cool, all right? I mean, it's gonna hurt my feelings, but it's cool. Um, where I just once or twice a day, I go to my news sites so I can kind of be informed. And then just once a day, I go to my phone and I Google J.B. Pritzker, our governor. And the reason that I do that is so I can see if he's made any orders that affect our church. And so just once a day, I go 
so I can kind of be informed. I go to news sites just like twice a day. I Google his name just once a day. And then I have taken my ball and I have gone home because I want to create some space where I can look in the mirror. And I'm trying to do that a little bit more. I've engaged in quite a bit of finger pointing in my life and I'm ready to engage in self-reflection as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus taught us to engage in self-reflection before we would ever judge anybody else. So I'm trying to also create some space of quiet. Um, Having two kids at nine and um, two, quiet is an elusive unicorn. Um, And that's just the stage of life we're in right now. But I'm trying to create space in the car when I'm by myself where it, it can be more quiet. Uh, I'm trying to engage in some space in the morning where it tends to be more quiet and not turn on. I used to turn on sports first thing. And this is just me reconsidering how I'm doing my life. So I get up before, you know, before the kids are awake, I'm going to catch up on all my sports media. And I love doing that. Uh, I've decided, to, I've tried to stop doing that for the most part so I can have a little bit of quiet in the morning to look in the mirror. Look in the mirror before I head out and uh, expose all that I am to everybody I meet. So, Um, and to engage in some self-reflection. And so that's all this is talking about, is when it talks about repentance, it's just evaluate what is causing the window watching. What is causing you to window watch versus look in the mirror and just make changes to to, to how you're living your life and then do the things you did at first. Great marriage advice, by the way, too, that when I uh, uh, engage with couples that are having marital problems, a lot of times that is, I kind of stole that question. All right, what were you guys doing at first? And it's like, well, at first, every once in a while, I'd send flowers home and tell her I love her. You know, the guy would say that. Or uh, the woman would say, you know, every once in a while, I would like leave a note for him on the window or or on the mirror when he's getting ready and just say, I love you. And these are some traits that I see in you. Um, We we do date nights and they'll, they'll say things like that. And like, we've stopped doing kind of all those things. It's like, well, do the things you did at first. And here's what I would guess is true about all of us at first. I would guess all of us, when we first were exposed to Jesus Christ, I would guess that we were, we engaged in more looking in the mirror than we did looking out the window. That just is my guess. I would guess that we loved his grace so much and we loved his forgiveness so much that we would identify sin and we would run to him for grace and we loved his grace, and we loved him for his grace, and our love never grew cold, and just over time, it happens to everybody. Over time, we just find ourselves at the window more and more and more, and we start identifying the sin of everybody else, and all of a sudden, we're wondering why our love for Jesus has grown so cold, and it's probably because we've stopped identifying our need for a savior, because we've stopped seeing our own sin. Not, this didn't bum me out, did it? This one? I told Cheryl this morning, I feel like I'm gonna bum everybody out, but it's true. It's true. So let's move away from the window. It's so easy to be at the window right now. Let's look in the mirror, see our sin, confess it, and fall in love with his grace again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. We thank you for the difference that it makes. It starts... Loving grace starts at the mirror. So can we look in the mirror right now and ask you to expose in us what needs to be exposed? Is there anger there? Is there pride there? 
Is there selfishness there? Help us to look at ourselves truthfully and see it and then go running to you who graciously forgives every one of those things, who graciously gives us the Holy Spirit to change us and transform us. May we run to you right now and fall in love with you again. Fall in love with your grace again. Fall in love with your freedom again. Fall in love with your mercy again. But it's gonna require us to do the things we did at first and to to stop pointing the finger at everyone around us, to, to look out the window and just see all the sin. And it's gonna require us to spend some time at the mirror and to see what you want us to see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.